You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Amen. Well, good morning. All right, good morning. If you're a kindergarten or first grader, you are welcome to head to Bible study with Tom and Olivia and Miss Sarah over there. And so feel free to go and dive into God's Word. For the rest of us, let me invite you to turn to the book of Acts. This is, this is your first time with us or, or your second time with us. We've just started at the start of this year a sermon series through the book of Acts. So we're in the New Testament uh, studying this history of the early church called the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And so we have just begun, and so we are in Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 26. So I'm glad you're here this morning and excited to see what God has to teach us from his word. So let's read this text. We're going to read Acts chapter 1, 12 through 26. Now pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in to see what the Lord will teach us this morning. So Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about, in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a kaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather this morning, Lord, we come, Lord, in desperate need of your Spirit's help to give us understanding of your word. And Lord, we confess, we believe wholeheartedly as a congregation, as a church, that the Bible is your breathed out word, that it's profitable for the building up of your church, for the preaching of the gospel. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would come and and do what you have promised us that you would do through the the ordinary means of preaching. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that the gospel is heard, and Lord, that as a body of Christ that we are built up to to be able to rightly discern your will for our lives, Father. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So I want you to think back to that transition from adolescence into adulthood. All right, for some of you, that was, that's right now, right? You're right there in the thick of that. For others of us, it's been 
a little bit of years, maybe a couple decades perhaps, right? But, but I want you to think back to that season of your life. And that season, right, the end of your teenage years, your early 20s, that, that transition into adulthood just bombards you with really big decisions that you have to make. And I remember back when I was in that stage of life, those, those big decisions that I had to make towards the end of my high school career and my early college years, I mean, these are some big questions you've got to be able to answer. Where am I going to go to college? Am I going to go to college? If I do go to college, what am I going to study? What sort of career path am I going to pursue? Who will I marry? Where will I live? You see, I don't think there's any season of life that presents as many life-altering decisions as young adulthood. And it was during that time that I remember I began to wrestle with a really big question. Maybe this is a question you've asked before. In fact, I'm sure it has been one. How do I know what God's will is for my life? You ever ask that? If you're asking it now, how do I discern what God has for me to do? As I think about college, as I think about school, as I think about who I'm going to marry, right? As I think about all these things, how do I know what God's will for me is? After all, these big questions for Christians are, are maybe different than the way non-Christians would think about them. You know, because as Christians, we're not trying to answer these questions selfishly. You know, I'm not, after all, I'm not living my life for, for my desires as a Christian. I'm not living for, for my pleasures, my wants, or even my glory. Instead, I believe that my life in the Lord Jesus Christ, it belongs to Him. He owns my life. He is my Lord. He, has, he is my master. Jesus has saved me. He's washed me clean by his blood. He's purchased me as his own. And, and like the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. There's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, right? As a young Christian thinking through that season, you, you believe that wholeheartedly. I understood back in my 19-year-old, my 20-year-old 19 Justin, right? I remember thinking that my life was not my own, that I've been crucified with Christ. The life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. So how then do I discern what God's will is? And that presented a, a crisis for my life as a young Christian. How do I figure out what God wants me to do with my life? How do I make decisions that have God's glory as their aim, not my own. So these questions have racked my brain in my late teens and my early 20s. And you know what? As I've gotten older, I found that there are just always big decisions to make. The decisions are just a little bit different. Maybe, maybe not quite as numerous all at one time. But there are always big decisions we make as believers. So I want to help us think through this morning a little bit. How do we discern the will of God? not just individually for your life, but even corporately as a congregation, as a church. So if you were here with us last week, when we first started the book of Acts, we saw how, how Jesus gives the disciples right before his ascension a commission, a job, a task. They are to be witnesses of the king's resurrection. That's their purpose. It's their mission statement for their lives, so to speak. They're to go and to let the, the, the people of the world know to the very ends of the earth that the king has come. He is alive. Go, Jesus says, and bear witness about me. But before you do, go and hang out in Jerusalem for a bit. Wait there because you need the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 26 this morning, we, we will see a snapshot of the church waiting for the will of God for their lives. They act in obedience to Jesus' words. They, they go back to Jerusalem and they wait on the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so as the church gathers together, as they wait, as they pray, Peter brings up an issue that needs resolution. Early church has got to figure something out. Who is going to replace Judas? Who's going to replace Judas? He was one of the 12. He needs to be replaced. And so we find the church comes together in prayer and in unity to seek the will of the Lord. And as they select Matthias to replace Judas, we see that the table is set 
for the arrival of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost in chapter 2. So here's really what I want to help us show, uh, show us this morning from the text. I want to help us think through how do we discern God's will together. So here's the, the sermon summary. Discerning God's will requires patient and prayerful obedience that seeks wise counsel and trusts in God's sovereignty in our action. It's a little bit of a longer one, so I'll give you a second to get that one down, right? Or I see all the cameras coming out, snapping pictures, whatever you do, right? So let me, let me rephrase it for you and, and, and help you understand. We, as we discern God's will, it requires, requires patience and prayerful obedience that seeks wise counsel and trust in God's sovereignty in our actions. So I'm going to kind of walk through this text for us this morning and, and kind of flesh out what, what I want to try to communicate to you from this text. So here's the first thing, patience, right? Patience. Pray for God's wisdom. Patience. Pray for God's wisdom. So after Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples were told, go from the Mount of Olives, and, and the journey was not far. It was about a Sabbath day journey away. And so in the Mishnah on the Sabbath, you couldn't walk more than three-fourths of a mile on the Sabbath. So again, the distance wasn't very far from the ascension to where the disciples traveled back to the upper room. And as they go, they, they find this upper room. And we're not sure if this is the exact same upper room as when the, the, the disciples took the Lord's Supper with Jesus. Maybe it was, we're not sure. But, but having an upper room was common in a lot of houses in those days. And, and a lot of times the houses were rented out to, the upper rooms of those houses were rented out to, to travelers on the Jerusalem version of Airbnb, right? You would come and, and you'd hang out there for a while when you're traveling in town in season. And so we see this is where the disciples and, and the kind of the early church is gathering. They're, they're being obedient to Jesus. They go back and they wait in Jerusalem. And we're told that Luke tells us that the, the size of the, the followers of Jesus at around this point are about 120 that are meeting together in this upper room. And the group includes... Uh, kind of the, the who's who of the early church, right? The 11 disciples are there, where Judas died, and we'll talk about him in just a moment. But the women are there, the women who followed Jesus, and most likely these were the women who uh, went to the burial tomb to find out that Jesus was alive. And so these, these ladies are here, these women who first bore witness about the resurrection. And we also see Jesus' family is here, right? His mother Mary is there and his brothers, and they're all gathered together, and they're being obedient to the Lord. The Lord said, wait. And so they wait. And while they wait, they pray. And here I think we learn one of the, the first important steps of discerning God's will is patience. Patience. That before the Lord ascended to heaven, he told his disciples, wait. Yes, they've got a, God's got a will for them. He's got a plan for their life to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. But first they must pause and they must pray, and they must patiently wait for the Father's gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, if you are a person of action, not taking action can feel very frustrating, can't it? But yet God often demands patience from us, waiting on his timing to act, his timing to decide, not our own. You know, I think in general, most of us, part of, part of, part because of our, our culture, right? We we are often too impulsive, we're too self-reliant, we're too self-sufficient. After all, being a man or, or woman of action that, that takes matters into their own hands, that is a virtue that is praised in our culture. Not sitting around, but getting things done, right? Making things happen. That's something our culture values. We love people who are efficient, who get things done quickly and effectively. Patience tends not to be a virtue we prize very much, and we struggle to possess it. In fact, our whole economy is built around the fact that nobody likes to be patient, right? Whole industries from the food and beverage world to the banking industry, all it all is built their, their businesses around getting you what you need fast, quick, effectively whether it's through the, 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 the drive-through lane or the mobile phone apps that they have, right? Everything is designed to get you what you need fast. And now you can do it without even talking to anybody, an introvert's dream, right? So, so again, everything has been catered to our lack of being able to wait. And so the scripture, though, 
tells us the opposite, right? The scriptures reminds us recurringly that when it comes to our lives, when it comes to what it means to, to follow the Lord, it often demands patience. How many times are we told in the Psalms to wait on the Lord? Let me just share a few with you. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. And in case you didn't get it the first time, wait for the Lord. Or, or how about Proverbs chapter 20, verse, verse 20. Uh, excuse me, that's the wrong verse. Psalm 33, verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Or Psalm 37, verse 9. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. So instead of taking matters into our own hands or, or conniving a situation from our own cunning and ability, as believers in the Lord, we have to learn to wait on the Lord. And when a big decision comes that we have to make in our lives, often what we should do first and foremost is slow down and wait for clarity and the Lord's will for our lives. That means that when we wait, we don't just twiddle our thumbs and, and stare at the sky while we wait. It's not the kind of waiting the Bible's talking about here. Times of waiting are meant to be times of prayer. That's the way God has designed it to work. And that's just what we see the early church do here in the book of Acts, as they're waiting on the Holy Spirit. What are they doing? They gather all 120 of them, in that upper room, I'm sure it was pretty tightly packed. And what did they do? What, is it, what does Luke tell us that they're doing? They're, they're praying. They're praying with one another. Look at verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Devoting. And in this period of waiting for the Holy Spirit, the, the community of the church gathered together to pray, and they're praying as they prepare for this task to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They're, they're praying for the Father's gift of the Holy Spirit to come and to come quickly. They're praying for the will of God. They're praying that the advancement of Christ's kingdom would, would happen through them. They devoted themselves to prayer. Devoted. They did not just give uh, merely an obligatory prayer for a minute or so, and then just hang out gossiping about the latest news and going on in Jerusalem. Now, this text says they devoted themselves. That word devoted communicates this idea of, of staying by, persisting at, to remain with. So as the early church is waiting, they devoted themselves to prayer, meaning they persisted continually in prayer. They, they kept at it. They remained in prayer as often as they were together. You see, in the book of Acts, we get several snapshots of, of the communal life of the early church. And this is one of those passages where we get a little bit of a glimpse of what it must have been like to be in that community. And one of the things we discover recurringly throughout the book of Acts is that when the early church is together, they're praying. They devoted themselves to prayer. The church community ought to be a praying community. A church without prayer is a church without power. And I'm convinced prayerlessness is a plight to our own individual souls, and it's a plight in our churches. That when we fail to exercise this sort of patient prayer, then we fail to rest and depend upon the Lord. Prayerlessness is in a lot of ways, a protest against God. It's a devilish rebuke of God's sovereignty. It's, it, prayerlessness is a sort of rebellious declaration. We're in charge. We're independent. We don't need you, God. We don't need anything. We've got this. You see, perhaps we have cluttered our lives and our churches with so much activity today that we need the same sort of rebuke that the Lord gave to the money changers in the temple as he cast them out. He quotes, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You see, I, I hope that Redemption Church, that our community here will be marked as a community of prayer. Not just when we're together on Sunday mornings when we pray, not just at our prayer meetings on Wednesday nights, but, but that any time that the, the, the community is assembling in any way, in any small portion of us together, that we mark times of prayer. Whether we're gathering together formally, in an official meeting that goes out in the newsletter, or whether we're just 
hanging out in each other's homes. We're eating a meal with one another. May we be devoted to prayer. At your community group, be devoted to prayer. At your lunch with members of the church, be devoted to prayer. That our corporate prayer together, when we are a praying people like the early church it was, then we are communicating that, that we need the Lord's wisdom. We need the Lord's help. We wait on him and we pray for his power as we engage in the will of God for our lives, as we engage in the mission that Christ has given us. So as we seek to discern the will of God, I think one of the first things that we have to to be able to do is to hurry up and wait, right? Slow down and wait on the Lord. Stop what you're doing and go to your knees and pray. And if you truly want to gain clarity from the Lord, I think we we must develop the consistent pattern of prayer, of devoted prayer in our lives. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 12, verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Those three things, there's an order to them that is prescribed by the Holy Spirit. So first, we want to be patient right? We want to pray and seek the Lord's wisdom as we're trying to discern the will of the Lord for our lives or for our church. But, but secondly, I want to show us how we ought to be obedient. We ought to be obedient and we ought to read God's word. So as the church gathered to, to wait and pray, Peter stands up and he presents a, a problem. And the problem was Judas. So look, at, look at what he says. This is in verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allowed his share in this this ministry. So as as Peter presents this vacant position of Judas, he, he helps us understand, he helps the early church understand, right, why Judas's betrayal and suicide was a fulfillment of God's word, right? Peter says the scripture had to be fulfilled. God's word is certain and true. And it helps us realize, right, that, that, that Jesus didn't make a mistake picking Jews, Judas as one of the 12. Nor was Jesus caught off guard by Judas's betrayal. And even though Judas's own evil actions sprung from his own heart and the wickedness therein, God in his sovereignty planned for Judas's betrayal and predicted it in the scriptures. So Judas's betrayal and death has been predicted by the the spirit-inspired scriptures. As, As Peter said, the scripture had to be fulfilled. So Luke does narrate for us what happened to Judas, in case you're unfamiliar. And some have suggested, if you've been keeping up with with the scriptures, and there's a little bit of differences between Matthew's account of Judas's death and Luke's account presented here in the book of Acts. And so some have said that there's a contradiction here in terms of how Judas died. So Matthew records that, that Judas threw down the pieces of silver and then went out and hung himself. And Luke records here in Acts that that money was used to buy a field and that Judas died by by falling and bursting open. So what's going on? How do we understand? How do we understand what what the actual event happened? So these these two accounts don't contradict, but instead, Matthew and Luke are giving us two different vantage points of viewing Judas' death. Matthew describes the events that lead up to Judas' suicide. Luke describes Judas after his suicide. So as Judas through the money to the religious leaders, the blood money was used to buy a field. And it was there on that field that Judas decided to hang himself. And so the corpse of Judas, more than likely, hung in that hot Jerusalem sun. And this is kind of gross, so lunch is a little ways away, so, so stay with me, right? His corpse became swollen with bacteria, and he bloated up, hanging in that hot Jerusalem sun like an overinflated balloon. And apparently his body fell either from a branch breaking or a rope breaking, and his body became so decayed that perhaps the rope could just no longer hold him. And then his decaying corpse fell to the ground, and when he fell, his body and bowels burst 
open. So Luke describes this event in much more gory detail to illustrate the judgment and condemnation that Judas received in his rebellion and betrayal against the Lord. You see, as Peter speaks before the church, as he's trying to help them think through Judas and what happened, which again, remember, just happened a, a little over a month ago, right? As they're, as they're talking about this, Judas was one of them. And he states, reminding them that this Judas, who was one of us, who did ministry with us, who was with us with the Lord, this is exactly what the Bible said would happen. And here again, I think we see another key component of the, the communal life of the early church. They were a word-centered community, as every church ought to be. Right? The Bible is the authority. So look at how Peter describes the divine authorship of Scripture. Look at what he says. He says, this Scripture, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Did you catch how, how, how Peter phrases this? The Holy Spirit was speaking beforehand by the mouth of David. So, so Peter helps us understand that the Bible has a dual authorship. There are the human authors, like, like David, who wrote the Psalms. But yet these men, as Peter will tell us later in his epistle, were carried along by the Spirit of God. And in their own language, their own style, their own vocabulary, the, the words that they wrote in the Bible are the very words of God. Every word of the Scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So look, look at what Peter says. He says, David wrote the psalm, but the Holy Spirit is speaking. This is, the Holy Spirit is speaking. So, so as Peter presents the problem, he cites two verses from the Psalter. The first is from Psalm 69, verse 25, when Peter says, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And the second is cited from Psalm 109, verse 8. Let another take his office. So as Peter handles these verses, as he's consulting God's word, he's not only convinced of God's plan, in the gruesome death of Judas, but he's also convinced by the testimony of Scripture that Judas's office's office needed to be replaced. Because Judas just wasn't just a, a normal follower of Jesus. Judas was one of the twelve. He was numbered among the disciples. He was allowed a share in this apostolic ministry. And so this special apostolic office was now left vacant by Judas and his abandonment of it. And so now Judas needed to be replaced. So the number 12 is very important. Jesus didn't just pick a random number of disciples and say, all right, 12 sounds all right. Let's, do, let's go with 12. One goes out, we still got 11. Now, that's not what Jesus, that's not the way he went about picking that number. The number 12 were called, if you remember, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And that through the 12, God was establishing his church. So Luke in his gospel talks about this and records when Jesus tells his disciples, this is what he says in Luke chapter 22, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we see that connection in Jesus' mind, and I'm sure in Peter's mind, as he listened to Jesus talk and share and, and preach and teach, that the number 12 is important for its correlation to the 12 tribes. So though a few other apostles would be added in addition to the 12, including Paul and Barnabas, which are mentioned in Acts chapter 14, verse 4, and James, who is the brother of the Lord in Galatians 1.19, we see him referred to as an apostle. These original 12, though, hold a special office of position in establishing the church, being the, the, the 12 apostles. But after the, the first apostles, the positions of apostles are not replaced. Now, this is a special office that the Lord established for his church at the very beginning. These are the first apostles. And these apostles were hand-selected by the Lord, and the original 12 served a vital role in find, founding the church. All right, so the office of apostle does not exist today. So when you see a billboard of some guy named Apostle coming around, he's not an apostle, right? The apostles were, were ones who bore witness to the, the risen Christ. So as the church waits and as the church prays, as they consult the Scripture, and on the grounds of Scripture, Peter discerns the will of God. 
They should not be surprised by Judas's betrayal. It was God's plan. Another must take his office, according to the word of God. You see, God was guiding Peter through the scriptures. And for us, the will of God is discovered as we study the scriptures too. In addition to patient prayer and discerning God's will, we must seek to obey God's word. And to obey God's word, guess what? You have to read God's word and know God's word. As we seek to understand our next steps in our life, and in these big decisions that we're often presented with, we must carefully root our hearts and pray in light of God's word. But how does that actually happen? How do we actually use God's word to to make those sort of practical practical decisions in life? Because after all, you can't open up to to Song of Solomon and find the name of your future spouse. That's not the way it works. And you can't go to the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes and and say, all right, here's my career right here. So how do we use God's word to discern the sorts of decisions that God might be leading us to? Well, Charles shared a a wonderful story this morning that that we, by the intervention of the Holy Spirit, plan to share on the same Sunday. But it's that story, like this old preacher's story of the guy that finds the Bible. He wants to know God's will for his life. Remember, and he he opens it up and and he begins to lay a finger on the verse. And and of course, he goes to Matthew 27, verse 5. Judas went out and hanged himself and says, well, that's not what I wanted for God's will. Closes the Bible, opens up, throws his finger down one more time, and then comes to another verse, go and do likewise. Closes the Bible one more time, opens it up, quickly, frustrated, and he puts his finger on a random verse, and it says, what are you doing? Go and do quickly. So, so again, that's the way, though. Like, it's, it's a funny story. We like to make fun of that guy, whoever that guy is. It's probably just a made-up preacher story, right? Um, but but, but that, we laugh at that guy because, again, he is a lot like us. And I remember as a, as a young, dumb Christian, right, I would, I would do something kind of slimmer. Like, God, just show me what you want me to read and, and just kind of open up and plot the Bible down, expecting, like, my name to appear, like, in bold in the, in the middle of the page. We, we often think the Bible is a lot like an encyclopedia, where we find answers, the exact answer we need for any given situation. And you often hear the Bible compared to a GPS. I think every preacher in the late 90s, early 2000s did a sermon series called GPS, God's Positioning System. Because of course, it's got to have a cheesy acronym to go with it, right? It's the Christian way. So we, we expect the Bible to be like a, a GPS, right? To give us those turn-by-turn directions, to, to map out our life from start to finish, the beginning to the end, and have an easy navigated map that we can see and envision for our lives. But, but friends, that's not the way God leads us, nor is that a good way to try to read the Bible. So, so I want to try to help us think through a little bit on this point here. How do we use God's word to discern God's will for our life? Well, I think there are three primary ways in which God's word helps us and discerning his will for our lives. First, the Bible shows us the wrong direction. The Bible shows us the wrong direction. And that's pretty, pretty clear. The Bible shows us what we ought not to do. So God will, will, will not direct your steps in a direction that his word forbids. That's really important to remember. So God is not going to lead you to rob a bank, right? To shack up with your girlfriend to sabotage your coworker as an act of vengeance. Right? Those are not things God's going to lead you to do. Why? Because theft, adultery, and personal retribution are all condemned in God's word. So scripture forbids certain behaviors and actions. God's not going to lead you to do anything that contradicts you, contradicts his word or causes you to disobey his word. But secondly, the Bible does point us in the right direction, the right direction. It gives us true north, so to speak. So so the Bible tells us all sorts of things that we ought to be doing and living as believers in Jesus Jesus Christ. So the Bible tells us that, that we're to live with kingdom priorities. We're to live for Christ and for his kingdom, meaning that, that Jesus's interests as my Lord are now my own interests. The Bible tells me that my life doesn't exist for me, 
but my life exists for, for God, for his glory, for his mission. The Bible tells me things like I, I ought to prioritize my family, my marriage, and my children. It tells me that there's dignity in, in God's in, in hard work. So it's not God's will for me to sit around like a bum. It tells me that, that I have to be a good steward of my funds, managing them carefully and generously for Christ's kingdom. The Bible tells me to prioritize the local church, to attend regularly, to be involved. The Bible tells me to love my neighbor, to show mercy, to share the gospel, and much, much more. God's word helps us in keeping our heart and our mind focused on eternity, on the risen Lord, and on the purpose of Christ's mission. So as you open up the Bible, you're not going to find your specific career plan, like a guidance counselor. But you will find that the Bible gives us the sort of general direction on the sort of life that we ought to be cultivating as believers and as Christians. And then thirdly, the Bible helps us navigate with practical wisdom. The Bible helps us navigate with practical wisdom. Not only can we learn from the failures and successes of, of the lives that are recorded in the Bible, but we can receive incredibly practical wisdom. And go to the book of Proverbs. Go to James. The Bible provides a, a cornucopia of practical wisdom about family, about finances, about how to put to death your sin, about your work, about citizenship, all sorts of things. The Bible provides practical wisdom as we think through these things together. And though the Bible is ultimately not about you, it's about Jesus and points to him, and that's something we can't ever forget as we read the Bible. It's not a self-help book. But we, at the same time, there are precious truths in the Bible that help provide just practical wisdom for our lives. And we ought not to forget it. So as you seek God's will, be sure to read the scriptures prayerfully, consistently, carefully, and obey what God has said. Because God may not lay out a step-by-step -step plan for your life, but he clearly, in his word, gives you a direction for your life. And he gives you the wisdom of his word to help discern what his will for your life may be. So we want to obey. We want to read the scriptures, study them, know them, listen to God's voice as our mind and heart begins to take on God's heart and priorities. But then thirdly, we want to seek counsel. We want to consult God's people. And we see this taking place here in verse 21 through 23. So as Peter presents this need for Judas's replacement. It's rooted in the conviction of God's word. And then Peter consults with the church, the rest of the church, the rest of the 120 that are there, to determine what those next steps are. They determine the, the qualifications together of what is the person who ought to fill Judas's vacant office. So they decide that this replacement needs to be a man who, who has been with Jesus throughout his ministry beginning from his baptism until the day of his resurrection and ascension. So after all, the apostles were to be witnesses of the resurrection, so the person needed to be there for the entirety of Jesus' life. And so after consulting with the church and talking amongst themselves, there were, there were two main candidates presented to fill the office. First was a man named Joseph, also called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, had a lot of nicknames apparently. And then there was another guy named Matthias. And both men met the qualifications laid out that they set, and both men, they believed, could fill the empty slot on the apostolic roster. But who are they going to pick? Well, we'll talk about how they select between these two in just a moment. But here I think we also see another vital component when it comes in to, to discerning God's will for our lives as a church or even individually. And that is we must seek the wise counsel of other godly brothers and sisters in the Lord. Seek wise counsel. You know, we often think of figuring out God's will for your life as a very individual thing. And that's probably just because we live in such an individualistic culture. So when we start thinking about what does God want me to do for my career or who, who to marry, all this sort of stuff, we start thinking very privately. This is a private matter just for me to figure out. So we, we often stay silent about our struggle over a decision that the Lord might be leading us to. And we try to handle it on our own, even though God has given us the gift of his people, right? Brothers and sisters in the Lord that we can 
share our struggles and our concerns, others in the body that are filled with practical wisdom and that can provide wisdom that we might lack, insight, things we hadn't thought about before that, that the Lord might use them to help illuminate. So I found that in my own life, the wise counsel of other brothers and sisters in the Lord can be a light bulb moment of clarity and discerning the will of God. So the most recent really big decision that I had to make in my life was whether to help out with starting a new church plant in Wilson and being its pastor. And that was a a difficult decision to make. I was coming out of a difficult situation. I struggled with whether to to stay or to go. What was the the right thing to do? What was God calling me to do? What, What is the wise thing here? In fact, I, in a lot of ways, I had planned on getting out of town, dusting the, the, the sand off my feet, shaking it off, and, and getting out of Wilson. In fact, I was in that process, even sending out resumes and, and phone calls with, with people through my network. However, I remember going to lunch in Raleigh with a, an older, wiser pastor in Mebane, North Carolina. His name was Pastor Stu. And he had been a helpful guide, particularly the last year of ministry, just as a counselor, a confidant, just a a brother filled with biblical wisdom. And of course, I explained my situation. I explained my wrestling over God's will and and what to do in this situation. And I remember he gave counsel that I never forgot. In a lot of ways, it was like that light bulb moment that the Lord used in my life. He told me that, that if I was leaving, and along with many other sheep, potentially, that if I couldn't shepherd them into a local church that took membership seriously, that shepherded souls, and that preached expositionally, then it was my God-given responsibility to stay and start one. And I was convicted, and I immediately, after that conversation, I knew what the will of the Lord was. I knew that I didn't want to be the, the sort of pastor that took the easy way out or that just climbed ladders to, to bigger and more lucrative churches, right? That's not what I wanted to do or be. I wanted to be a, a shepherd, and that meant doing hard things, but staying and shepherding the the homeless and tattered sheep who needed a shepherd that became that founding core group of redemption. That was the light bulb moment in which I was certain of the Lord's will in my life. So we need the voice of others. You need the voice of others in your life. Those who know you, know your heart, that know God's word, those that you trust for wise counsel. Now, Now, wise counselors aren't infallible right? Only the Bible is infallible. But other brothers and sisters in the Lord can be so helpful in discerning God's will. And oftentimes the Lord uses them to help us get clarity and conviction on what we must do. As Proverbs chapter 11 verse 14 says, where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in abundance of counselors, there is safety. So God's gift to us is the church, and we should consult the godly people in our lives as we seek to discern God's will, not only corporately as a church, but even individually in the personal decisions we make. So next time, you've got a big decision to make. Maybe you've got one right now that you need to figure out what the Lord's will is. Go talk to your community group leader. Ask them what they think. Find a godly woman in this church and gain input and clarity. Don't spurn or Ignore the counselors that God has placed into your life. And they may just be the ones that God has put in place to help you gain clarity in discerning the Lord's will. So seek counsel. Fourthly, act. Trust in God's sovereignty. See, the church had two qualified candidates to replace Judas. But instead of the church voting between the two to fill this one vacant office, the church decided to determine which man would take that office by casting lots. So again, I don't think that Luke is trying to make this a prescriptive thing, that the church, I don't think, should make a habit of making decisions by casting lot. But I think it was quite wise for this particular situation, for this decision, because both candidates here were qualified, both Justice and Matthias, they they would have both done really well in the role. They wouldn't have been uh, presented by the church. However, we see here how united the church is in this early days of its existence, that they're waiting for Pentecost to come, and the church wants to preserve its unity. And and as they prayed, Luke tells us they were of one accord. So forcing a vote 
It'd be very divisive, couldn't it? Forcing the men to, to lobby for themselves. Here's why I think I should be the next apostle. Vote for me. Make the church great again, right? Well, whatever. I mean, it, that would just be inherently divisive, right? That would just be rupturous for the church. And then to have other people candidate and, and have the votes, it just would divide the body. This was a special office, right? This is an office that really was just one spot for. And so the church would elect for future offices like deacons in, in the future. But for the office of apostle, this is different. This is one of the 12. So just as Jesus called each disciple to follow him, the early church wanted God to have the ultimate decision in this matter. And so look, what did they do? Look at what the text says. They kept praying, right? Praying goes throughout this whole process. They kept praying and they prayed, you, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these two you, God, have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own way. And so the, the early church believed in the absolute sovereignty of God, including in the rolling of the dice. And as the book of Proverbs tells us, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so even though the Lord has designed the world to work in such a way in which there are probability and statistics, right? we don't just pray up and go to Las Vegas trusting that the Lord will make the lots cast in our favor. Right? That's not, not the way we are to do things. But at the same time, the early church knew, as every believer who trusts in God's sovereignty knows, there is no luck in God's universe. Everything is under his control. Everything is under his sovereignty, even down to the casting of lots. So the church decides to leave it to God in determining how the lot should fall. That way, the man that was selected, the one that the lot fell on, that was the one chosen by God. And so there's no need for a divisive vote in a young but unified church. God's will would be clear. And so the lot falls on Matthias. We're told that he is numbered as one of the apostles. So as we discern God's will, we want to be patient in prayer. We should read, we should obey God's word. We should consult others in the Lord for wisdom and counsel, but yet there comes a time for action, for making a decision and ultimately trusting in the Lord's sovereignty over that decision. See, many times we become paralyzed over big decisions in our life or in our church. And we live in fearful worry as we make that decision. What if I make the wrong one? What if I make the wrong decision? What if I choose wrongly? What if I place myself outside of God's sovereign plan for my life? And of course, the answer is, you're not. <laughs> you're not. No one makes any decision outside of God's sovereign plan for your life. Even the dumb and sinful decisions that we have made in our life, God has purposed and used those to bring us where we are today for his glory. And just as there is no need to live for remorse under God's grace, so should we be free from indecisiveness over fear of decision. You see, there comes a point in that process, indecision, perhaps between two good options, where you've weighed the counsel of Scripture You've bathed that decision in prayer. You've consulted wise counsel. Either option looks best. Not sure which one. How do you choose? And the answer just isn't complicated. Pick one. Pick one and trust in God's sovereignty. Take action in faith. Make a decision and trust the results to the Lord. You see, being paralyzed by indecisiveness isn't a sign of wisdom, but of a lack of faith. I'll say that one more time. Being paralyzed by indecisiveness, it's not necessarily a sign of wisdom. Yeah, you want to be patient. That doesn't necessarily mean you're being wise. But oftentimes, it's just a result of a lack of faith. You don't trust the Lord with your life and with the decisions that he's called you to make. See, pastor and author Kevin D. Young wrote a short little book called Just do something. It's a great little book. I often give it to, to graduates in that young adult phase of life. And in that book, this is what he says. I love this quote. So go marry someone, provided you're equally yoked and you actually like being with each other. Go get a job, provided it's not wicked. 
Go live somewhere and something with somebody or nobody, but put aside the passivity and the quest for complete fulfillment and the perfectionism and the preoccupation with the future. And for God's sake, start making some decisions in your life. Don't wait for the liver shiver. If you are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will be in God's will. So just go out and do something. And there comes a point, I think, after patient prayer, after the reading of scripture, after the consulting of God's people, where you just need to act in faith, trusting that if you are seeking first God's kingdom, you are going to be in God's will. So just go and do something. So as Christians who aim to live for the Lord, as I hope that's, that's your goal for your life, when I want to live for Jesus, we know that our lives are bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that God is sovereign that God does have a plan for our lives, and that plan is ultimately for us to bring him glory as we live for his kingdom's cause, that we've been purchased by his blood, that we've been washed clean by his sin, that we've trusted him in faith, and we have been brought into God's family, and that God has now, by his wonderful grace, put us on the path of righteousness to advance his kingdom in the world. So when you struggle to discern God's will, I pray that you might follow the pattern laid out here for the early church. Be patient in prayer. Follow their obedience to the word. Follow their wise consultation with other believers. However, at the end of the day, may we act in faith, trusting that our sovereign God directs our steps in the same way that he causes the lot to fall. And if we are following Jesus, when we are in God's will, in the freedom of grace, may we act and do with boldness and courage as we live out God's will for our lives in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to patiently pray and seek your will. That you would help us to read and obey your word and allow the, the vision of scripture for our lives to take root. Father, we pray that we would consult in the wisdom of other wise believers in the Lord. And Lord, that ultimately we would act and trust in you as our sovereign Lord. So God, we pray that as we respond, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.